It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Noxious gas tainted the brisk Ohio air as the plane taxied down the runway. From a distance, an English Springer Spaniel got her first whiff of Air Force Two. She whined at her owner, Will Farish, who assured her it was fine. Will took the spaniel by her sleek new leather leash. He walked her along the tarmac towards an elderly couple flanked by men in suits and earpieces. The man wore a formal suit, the woman a black fur coat and her signature fake pearls. The couple was clearly important. The dog had come all the way from Kentucky to meet them. She'd been preparing for this moment for weeks in an obedience school intensive. The rugs in the vice president's house were antique. Accidents were strictly prohibited. Not to mention embarrassing to her owners, Vice President George and Barbara Bush. George beamed and rubbed noses with the dog, who he'd call Millie. He liked her immediately. Barbara was more reserved. The matriarch only wanted the best for her family. And this dog? She wasn't the color they'd requested. Her spots were liver, not black, and certainly not the shiny blonde of their last dog, Seafred. Then there was her gender. They hadn't had a female dog before. Barbara crouched to meet Millie. The dog jumped up, paws treading the expensive black dress Barbara hadn't had time to change out of. Just like everything else in the Bush's lives, adopting a new dog was a formally scheduled appointment, smack between a vice presidential address in Ohio and a flight to see extended family in Maine. With the dog handed over, it was time to board the plane. Millie ignored Barbara's apparent discontent and trotted up onto Air Force Two right after her, a closer tail than the Secret Serviceman. When Barbara positioned herself on a couch for the flight, Millie snuggled up in her lap. Barbara leaned over to Millie and whispered to her, You are so sweet, but you are so ugly. You have a pig's nose, you are bow-legged, and your eyes are yellow. Not exactly the greeting one would hope for, but ugly or not, Millie was determined to win over the heart of Barbara Bush and the American people. Welcome to Dog Tales, a podcast original. 
Every week, we tell the stories of historic, heroic canines. We'll profile dogs who saved people from earthquakes, went to outer space, and even spurred the invention of Velcro. If you're looking for fun stories and a warm heart, you're barking up the right tree. I'm your host, Alastair. You can find episodes of Dog Tales and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dog Tales for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dog Tales in the search bar. This week, we're telling the story of best-selling author and former Oval Office resident Millie Bush. An English Springer Spaniel adopted in 1987, Millie was a handful. She had too loving a heart for hunting, but too much energy for the dignified office her owners held. Through her tenure as first dog, Millie was ostracized by the press, embarrassed herself on national television, and shed all over the antique furniture. But Millie made up for this with one very important act. She made America love the bushes. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. Millie was called ugly throughout her life. But we view dozens of pictures while producing this episode and frankly disagree. Millie may not have been the type to win best in show, but she was certainly cute and fluffy. However, her public perception as an ugly dog is important to her story, which began in the 1980s. From day one, Mildred Kerr Bush had a lot to live up to. Her owner, George H.W. Bush, was the former director of the CIA and current vice president of the United States. Her other owner, Barbara Bush, ran the family's political dynasty from the sidelines. In January 1987, Barbara had a lot to do, as her husband was beginning his second presidential campaign. With the lingering threat of the Iran-Contra scandal, attempts to end the Cold War still unresolved, and the hardest part of the campaign trail looming ahead, the Bushes had perhaps never needed unconditional love more. Through the 1980s, they had come to rely on their Cocker Spaniel, C. Fred, for warmth and affection. C. Fred was a well-groomed, curly-haired blonde, think Lady from Lady and the Tramp, and just as stately. He'd met prime ministers and princesses, actors and astronauts. He had written a book. He knew how to fetch. He looked good in hats. During George's ambassadorship to China, the Bushes learned that the Chinese had banned all dogs, killing them in the streets. But the Bushes loved Seafred so much, they made special arrangements to keep him at the American embassy throughout their years in China. Life without their dog wasn't an option. He was family. Seafred was also family to their right-hand man and top aide, Don Rhodes. Perhaps no one was closer to the bushes. Rhodes taught all the bush kids to drive and took Seafred for long car rides. When George became vice president, Rhodes made a point of getting Seafred his own White House ID badge. And he wasn't just a VIP. Seafred was an outlet for the so-called patrician bushes to show a sense of humor. 
He wore comical sweaters and backpacks with slogans like, I hate cats and not a golden retriever. He was a beloved, perfect pet. Barbara said the pup had always shown his true color, gold. But on January 20th, 1987, at the age of 13, C. Fred Bush died. The family was devastated, particularly Barbara and Don Rhodes. As Barbara hit her 60s, all her children had left home, and Don never had a wife or children of his own. It's likely C. Fred filled a gap in their lives. A study by psychiatrist Kenneth Keddy found that pets, especially dogs, can perform the psychological role of a spouse, child, or sibling for people who don't have them. While dogs can bring great meaning to our lives, this bond also has a flip side. Keddy found that when dogs we have family relationships with die, grief can hit just as hard as when we lose a human child, spouse, or parent. This is likely how Don Rhodes felt at the loss of Seafred. While George was sad to lose Seafred himself, he especially couldn't bear to see his wife and top aide so upset. Both were trying to keep a stiff upper lip for the presidential campaign, but George could see right through it. He'd known them both for decades. They needed a dog to be happy. So George started calling around for a new dog, not a puppy. He wanted a pet that was already trained. As he said, training puppies on your own rugs is a challenge. Training pups on government rugs is impossible. George remembered that his friend Will's hunting dog had a litter of puppies the year before. And better yet, Barbara had gotten along swimmingly with the puppy's mother. He called him up. On the phone, Will told George he had a two-year-old dog that didn't have the right temperament for hunting and would make a perfect pet. George said he'd take her and began making arrangements. Barbara perked up at the idea of a new dog. She agreed there was a hole in their lives without Seafred. Don Rhodes, however, disagreed. He took the news from George like a professional, then marched right to Barbara's office. He leaned in the doorway, interrupting her work. Let me ask something. If the vice president died, would you get a new husband? Barbara quipped, you bet, if I could get one just as good. After stomping off, Don gave Barbara the cold shoulder for several days. But by February 13, 1987, they'd made up and Millie, the English Spaniel, was sitting in Barbara's lap on Air Force Two, having just been told she was a very ugly dog. Looks aside, the dog was part of the Bush family now, which meant she was a public figure. That impacted every aspect of her life, even her name. The Bushes had a tradition of naming their pets after good friends, and the latest honoree was Mildred Kerr, an old friend and neighbor from their years in Houston. She'd only been with the Bushes for an hour, and there was already so much for Millie to live up to. The legacy of Seafred, her socialite namesake, the expectation that a dog be cute. Millie had already been deemed a failure as a hunting dog. 
could she possibly rise to her new family's expectations, especially a family running for the highest office in the US government? Of course, Millie had no idea about the Bushes' political aims. Her priorities for the weekend were 1. Cuddling on the plane ride and 2. Chasing seagulls on the beaches of Maine. But for Barbara Bush, the dog was an extension of her public image. And she'd been told her image needed work. Through George's political career, Barbara's grandmotherly appearance had been cause for concern. Campaign staff and family suggested making her look, as Barbara said, snappier. That meant losing weight, dyeing her hair, dressing better, and doing something about her wrinkles. Barbara was humiliated and took none of their suggestions. Growing up, her mother had also criticized her appearance, and it may have put a chip on her shoulder, a chip she now shared with her dog. But for Barbara and Millie, the humiliations were just beginning. After the weekend in Maine, Millie moved into number one observatory circle, the vice president's official residence. It was a lovely home situated within the 77-acre U.S. Naval Observatory Park. And just like the White House, it's considered government land, decorated with beautifully manicured gardens and woods. As spring dawned, the executive gardeners got to planting the newest publicly funded flower beds. And Millie got to digging them up. She may have been housebroken in her obedience crash course, but she hadn't been trained to stay completely out of trouble. After Millie unearthed several tulip bulbs in May 1987, an entire flower bed had to be redone. The gardeners sent the second lady's secretary a polite FYI, hoping she'd do something about her dog. Barbara responded with a sincere apology and a photo of Millie with some tulips. The verdict was out as to whether Millie was cute enough to warrant their forgiveness. Barbara could only hope. But the apology card wasn't Millie's only photo op. Just like with her children, Barbara Bush was determined to get her dog good PR. This became imperative when George secured the 1988 Republican Party nomination. The Bush's dream of the White House was closer than it had ever been, and even Millie had her role in helping achieve it. When Benji, the canine actor who played Benji, visited DC, Millie hosted her, along with Jenna and Barbara Bush's kindergarten class. When Pet Magazine Vanity Fur, yes, Vanity Fur, covered a Republican pet fundraiser, Millie posed with dogs belonging to activist Maureen Reagan and Representative Helen Bentley. At the fundraiser, Don Rhodes reluctantly accompanied Millie. He'd never had to worry about Seafred embarrassing the family, but Millie needed a close eye. Luckily, she kept it together at the Vanity Fur Fet, because this was only the beginning of her PR duties. In November 1988, George H.W. Bush won the election. He'd be the 41st President of the United States, stepping into one of the world's biggest spotlights. And Millie Bush would be right beside him, for better or for worse.
Up next, Millie moves into the White House. Now, back to the story. On the eve of President George H.W. Bush's inauguration in 1989, his wife Barbara told reporters, My mail tells me that a lot of fat, white-haired, wrinkled ladies are tickled pink. I mean, look at me. If I can be a success, so can they. And Barbara was determined that her droopy-eared, yellow-eyed dog Millie would be a success too. Sure, Millie often got in trouble, and Barbara herself had called Millie ugly. But like every member of the Bush family, Millie had a political role to play. When Millie moved into the White House with President George and First Lady Barbara Bush in January 1989, she succeeded six dogs owned by the Reagans. Dogs who rarely made the news. The only one who had, Lucky, drew attention for tugging on his leash, making it look like the Reagans couldn't control him. After this news story, Lucky was promptly exiled to California. No one wanted to see Millie shipped off to California. They wanted her to be popular, beloved, like Franklin Roosevelt's Terrier Fowler or Gerald Ford's Golden Retriever Liberty. Both were beautiful dogs who looked good in photographs and behaved themselves. Millie was neither. In fact, some people called her Mildred Kerr with a C, as in an aggressive dog or low-class pet, an opinion shared by the outgoing administration. Before Millie moved into the White House, the Reagans had a Beware of Dog sign installed on the grounds. Ostensibly, it was a warning to the squirrels and a joke. But Nancy Reagan and Barbara Bush had a bit of a rivalry, and Millie was Barbara's dog. Any offense to Millie was an offense to the First Lady. Veil jab or not, the sign didn't protect the White House wildlife. By 1990, Millie had killed four squirrels, three rats, and a pigeon. And that was only on White House grounds. There's no telling how many hours she spent hunting in the secrecy of the president's wooded vacation retreat, Camp David. Millie ignored all rules of propriety inside the White House, too. Her owners sat in the lap of luxury, and, like most dogs, Millie was determined to sit right next to them. She had her own dog bowls made of Waterford crystal, but was photographed drinking for the White House stemware, some of which dates back to the Monroe era. She also had her own plush bed emblazoned with the presidential seal, but was often caught napping on the bed in the Queen's bedroom, typically reserved for visiting heads of state. In fact, she lounged on any piece of White House furniture that struck her fancy. Millie didn't care that English Springer Spaniels are known to shed. A lot. Sometimes, Millie laid beside the official portrait of First Lady Grace Coolidge and her border collie, Rob Roy. Rob Roy was such a good first dog, Grace insisted he be permanently memorialized in the White House. In 1989, Millie was often spotted on the first floor, sitting in the very literal shadow of her predecessor. Although she flouted the rules, Millie soon settled into her role as first dog. 
Like the president and first lady, she had a scheduled daily routine. According to Barbara Bush, it went something like this. Just before 6am, she'd wake her owners up by shaking her long, curly ears in their faces. Barbara would spring out of bed, throw on a tracksuit, and take Millie on a morning walk around the White House gardens. They'd rejoin George in the bedroom, where the Bushes enjoyed coffee and the news in bed while Millie enjoyed her kibble. Though they had first-class chefs at the White House, the Bushes thought it best to feed Millie regular dog food and occasional treats from the table. George couldn't help himself. He was the one person who'd always found Millie adorable. At approximately 7 a.m., Millie would follow George into the Oval Office for several hours of calls, meetings, and leading the free world. Sprawled out on the iconic presidential seal rug, Millie overheard all sorts of state secrets. George famously quipped that Millie knew more about foreign affairs than actual politicians. But the only words she truly cared to hear were, good girl and fetch. She loved to sit with her tennis ball until George had a spare moment to throw it for her. When nature called, Millie scratched at the door, ready for the commander-in-chief to let her out. And in, and out again. Millie seemed to have as much trouble making up her mind as George did convincing Mikhail Gorbachev to end the Cold War. Of course, Millie didn't spend her entire day in the Oval Office. She quickly learned how to ring the bell for the elevator, and the two operators soon knew her by name. This gave her the run of the house. Through the afternoon, she'd charm a few senators, make the White House interns smile, and perhaps even wag her tail at a tour group. Trotting through the historic halls, she'd beg a few treats from staffers or tail Barbara, who said Millie was often her shadow at the White House. Barbara complained she could never enter a room discreetly because Millie always ran in first, heralding her or George's arrival. Every evening, the Bush's top aide, Don Rhodes, took Millie for a walk. Though he'd warmed up to her, Don still refused to be photographed with Millie. He said it was because of shyness, but he'd been readily photographed with Seafred. Barbara had to wonder if Don's reluctance was because Millie wasn't as photogenic as Seafred, and if her new dog would ever be as beloved as the Cocker Spaniel. But Barbara was beginning to realize that it wasn't about Millie living up to Seafred's legacy, just like it wasn't about her living up to Nancy Reagan's. The new first lady and first pet had to make their own mark on history. And the cameras were coming, whether they were ready or not. In 1989, Diane Sawyer and Sam Donaldson did a live tour of the White House for ABC's new show, Primetime. Donaldson introduced the show, saying, We don't have a monarchy in this country, but the White House is as close as any symbol we have to the majesty and to the sovereignty of the United States. Barbara walked him through the residence, discussing her husband's administration and the historic decor. In the Oval Office's regal yellow room, Donaldson called attention to Millie, who sat on the carpet, wagging her tail. 
the camera cut to a close-up of Millie, who promptly leaned over, raised her left leg, and began licking her rear end. The cameraman quickly cut to a wider shot, but Millie was still visible, licking away. She continued to embarrass herself on camera until Barbara realized and nudged her to stop. Even worse was the topic of conversation. Sam Donaldson had the gall to ask Barbara about the Washingtonian magazines dubbing Millie the ugliest dog around. Barbara said George was upset, but she wasn't bothered. She quipped Millie was being pretty ugly right now. They both chuckled and Sam changed the subject. When Millie went back to her intimate grooming, the camera tactfully panned to the presidential flags. But Millie didn't confine herself to embarrassing moments in front of Americans. She also embarrassed herself on the global stage. The Bushes had never wanted their previous dog, Seafred, involved in international relations. But in the White House, it was clear they couldn't keep Millie out of them. A few weeks into the presidency, the Bushes hosted their first white tie event, a formal reception for the diplomatic corps. The glitzy party brought together ambassadors and royalty from around the world. Everyone was dressed to the nines. Before the reception began, the Bushes invited the dean of the corps and his wife, the Count and Countess Wachtmeister of Sweden, to join them upstairs alongside a few other esteemed guests. The plan was for the president, first lady, count and countess, to make a grand entrance together to officially open the reception. Upstairs, the countess spotted Millie and wanted to say hello. In her black velvet ball gown and diamond tiara, she bent down to greet the dog. Oddly, Millie backed away from the countess. No one understood why she wouldn't let the countess pet her, but it was embarrassing for the bushes. Would the count and countess take offense to the unfriendly dog? How would this affect international relations with Sweden? Before George could crack a joke to smooth things over, Millie vomited. Barbara and George were mortified, and the diplomats were, to quote Barbara, horrified. George quickly ushered the guests from the room while Barbara summoned someone to help clean up. Then she went to comfort Millie. No one would remember the grand entrance that night, but they would remember the Bush's puking dog. However, this incident wasn't entirely Millie's fault. She wasn't vomiting because she was sick. She was pregnant. Millie Bush was expecting a litter of puppies. And in March 1989, the White House's dog problems were about to increase sevenfold. Up next, Millie becomes a mother. Now, back to the story. In March 1989, President George H.W. Bush was breathing deeply through his crucial first 100 days in office. And his spaniel Millie was breathing deeply through the crucial last two weeks of her pregnancy. She waddled around, tummy swollen, scratching taxpayer-funded paint off the walls. She seemed constantly uncomfortable. Millie wouldn't sleep in her doghouse, 
and her presence in the bed with George and Barbara kept the president awake. No one was sleeping well. So the president was banished to the Lincoln bedroom, while pregnant Millie slept in the executive suite with Barbara. White House carpenters set up a nesting box in the First Lady's beauty parlor, hoping Millie would be able to give birth there and not in the president's bed or any of the antique rugs. To make it more comfortable, they filled the box with shredded newspaper, presumably articles critical of the current administration. But Barbara was much more concerned with Millie's health than possible damage to the house. She knew a dog's temperature drops about two degrees when they are ready to give birth and kept the thermometer handy. Ugly or not, embarrassing or not, Millie was her dog and Barbara had grown to love her dearly. All she could do was hope and wait. But the Bushes weren't the only ones waiting with bated breath. According to Barbara's memoir, at least one paper was running a daily Millie countdown to the puppy's arrival. On March 17, 1989, the Bushes were hosting a dinner and movie night. Barbara skipped the film to wait up with Millie, who was panting heavily. In short order, Millie gave birth to her first puppy. Barbara called George in and they joyfully welcomed five more healthy puppies into the White House. Even better, Millie delivered them right where she was supposed to, in her custom nesting box. Five girls, one boy, no ruined carpets. The dogs all received names much less formal than their mother, including Spotfetcher, Cammy, Ranger, and Pickles. The puppies launched Millie to political stardom. She might have been considered ugly, but no one could discount the cuteness of a puppy, or six. Even Don Rhodes found himself carrying Millie's puppies around. While he'd never stopped loving Seafred, the six little dogs certainly stole his heart and warmed him up to Millie too. The new dogs were the toast of Washington. According to Barbara, George took every opportunity to visit the puppies, often introducing them to White House visitors while discussing matters of state. They say deals are made on the golf course, but in the first Bush administration, deals were made in the doghouse. Staffer Doug Weed noted state events that spring were planned to include the puppies. He said they were carefully choreographed so that guests could see all these little puppies. It was calculated, like a state dinner. Also calculated? The pictures. According to researcher Diana B. Carlin, the bushes were seen as patrician and out of touch when they entered the White House. But that began to change a few months into the presidency when photographers captured George on the White House lawn, playing with the puppies. He laid flat on his back, letting the six little dogs climb all over him and lick his face. In the photos, he looks like he could be your dad, your neighbor, someone you meet at a barbecue, proving you should never underestimate the power of a puppy photo. Millie, the dog who'd been a liability, was suddenly a boon to the Bush's image. By May, the puppies were included on public White House tours. 
guests at black tie events began requesting to meet Millie. Barbara, Millie, and the puppies made the cover of Life magazine. According to Barbara, Millie was getting more publicity than some members of the cabinet. Of course, the puppies couldn't stay in the White House forever. Though people across America contacted the White House about adopting them, they all stayed fairly close to home. Puppies Spot and Ranger went to Bush sons George and Marvin. The rest went to other family members and friends. As she settled back into life without the puppies, Barbara realized that Millie had found her calling, connecting the bushes to the American people. It was time to capitalize on the publicity. So Barbara decided Millie should write a book. Write being a loose term. Though Millie is credited as the author of Millie's book, the cover denotes it is as dictated to Barbara Bush. It was shockingly easy for Millie to get her book deal, largely because Barbara had already written a book, See Fred's Story, in 1984. It was a modest success, raising nearly $100,000 for two literacy charities. Barbara's signed copies included a stamp of C. Fred's paw print. But the book once again put Millie in C. Fred's shadow. Would Americans entertain a second book written by a dog, especially one full of pictures of an ugly dog? The pressure heightened when the forthcoming book's royalties were earmarked for the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy. It was a new charity, supporting Barbara's key cause as First Lady. If the book failed, Barbara and Millie would both be laughingstocks. To make things even more chaotic, Millie's puppy Ranger rejoined the White House that fall. Barbara wrote that Ranger was very much George's dog, as Millie was hers. But Ranger was still a puppy, and he was his mother's son. He was rowdy, often waking the bushes up before 5 a.m. He chased squirrels, begged for treats, and even once peed on an important visitor's shoes. In short order, Ranger ate so much that he became dangerously obese and had to be put on a special diet. The president sent out a White House memo requesting that staffers take a very important oath. I will not give biscuits to Ranger. In response, Barbara had matching tracksuits made for Ranger, Millie, and herself. The trio would get fit together. With Ranger under the same roof, Millie was no longer the only troublemaking dog in the White House. And despite her flaws, her star was only on the rise. On September 12, 1990, Millie's book launched with a book party at the swanky Pierpont Morgan Library in New York City. However, Millie did not attend. Barbara explained she had more important duties to attend to that evening, supporting the president as he worked through the Persian Gulf crisis. But international crises didn't spare Millie from all her press duties. She attended several book signings, greeting fans while Barbara stamped the books with her paw print. And, according to Press Secretary Anna Perez, Millie had the distinction of A, being on all three morning talk shows, and B, going to sleep on all three morning talk shows. 
these were, at least, an improvement from her crass primetime appearance. The tales of Millie's life in the White House, even the trouble she and Ranger got into, made her more popular than ever. The White House gave Millie her own mailbox and a dedicated volunteer to manage her fan mail. On September 30th, Millie's book debuted at number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. It remained in the top 10 for three straight months. Millie Bush was a New York Times best-selling author, an accomplishment most humans only dream of. And she was only five years old. The following week, Millie and Barbara, the same duo who'd been called ugly and plain, were cover girls on the October issue of People magazine. Though at this point, neither was concerned with vanity. They had a much bigger goal in mind, childhood literacy. Millie's book raised over a million dollars for the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy. Barbara noted that Millie made more money than the president that year. Millie's book even went international, with editions published in German and Japanese. And all of this raised funds and awareness to help children learn to read with confidence. In one receiving line, an admirer told Barbara, the best thing this administration has done is Millie. Millie was happy to take the compliment, even if Barbara and George were miffed. But they had bigger concerns than their dog outshining them. She was getting sick. In the summer of 1990, Millie began to walk with a limp. While she tried to keep up her usual antics, Barbara could tell the dog was in a lot of pain. Millie was eventually diagnosed with lupus, an autoimmune disorder. Barbara understood autoimmune disorders all too well. She had one herself. Just the year before, Barbara had been diagnosed with Graves' disease and put on a steroid called prednisone to treat the condition. Coincidentally, Millie was given the same prescription for her lupus, prednisone. If that wasn't odd enough, in May 1991, George fell ill while out for a run at Camp David. Fearing a heart attack, staffers had him helicoptered to the hospital. But it wasn't a heart attack. He, too, had Graves' disease. The media ran with it, thinking there could be something in the White House water. George W. Bush even quipped, Mom, you could end all the talk if you and Dad would just stop drinking out of Millie's bowl. Jokes aside, there isn't a known environmental trigger for autoimmune diseases. It appeared to be an extremely bizarre coincidence that both Bushes and their dog came down with similar disorders and within just two years. However, more recent medical research indicates a possible trigger for autoimmune disorders stress. At the time Barbara was diagnosed, her husband had just become leader of the free world. At the time George was diagnosed, he was in the midst of two major conflicts, ending the Cold War and beginning the Persian Gulf War. As for Millie, she likely picked up on her owner's stress and internalized it. 
A European study led by zoologist Biagio Daniello found that dogs can smell the hormones humans release when stressed or scared, and can become stressed themselves. But luckily for all three bushes, they had access to great medical care and were able to perform their duties with aplomb through 1992. That same year, Millie had her most important political meeting yet. Boris Yeltsin, the first Russian president after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, visited the White House. There, President Yeltsin took a picture with Millie. The Cold War was officially over. This was largely due to years of political negotiations by President Bush, Mikhail Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan, Boris Yeltsin, and dozens of other hardworking politicians. But in her own small way, Millie helped too. Who knows what would have happened if the leaders of two world superpowers had put their hands on the nuclear football instead of a fluffy dog. The Bushes hoped this success would lead to victory in the upcoming presidential election, but the campaign trail was tough on everyone. Millie was often left at home when the Bushes traveled, and she grew lonely. Both George and Barbara battled low energy due to their Graves' disease. Combined with the Gulf War, it was too much to face. In November, George's campaign ceded defeat to Bill Clinton. In January 1993, the Bushes packed up. Millie personally welcomed the Clintons into the White House, though we can't imagine she was thrilled to cede the position of first pet to their cat, Socks. For George, Barbara, Millie, and Ranger, it was off to Texas for a quiet life post-presidency. Texas was full of big lawns to run on, big squirrels to chase, and increasingly bigger grandchildren who loved to play tug-of-war. For Millie, the next four years were peaceful and happy. Free from any political obligations, she could simply be a dog. Don Rhodes even gave a positive interview about Millie, saying, She's a very friendly dog. She's nice to everybody, although she's sort of bashful with strangers. She's a little lady. A far cry from the dog who once licked herself on camera and nearly threw up on foreign dignitaries. It had taken some doing, but Millie Bush had won everyone over. Sadly, in 1997, Millie grew sick again. This time, it wasn't a lupus flare-up, it was cancer. That summer, 12-year-old Millie died peacefully, having enjoyed her last days at the Bush's vacation home in Kennebunkport, Maine. George put out a press release announcing her death, not because he felt America needed to know, but because he knew reporters often checked in on Millie during interviews, and he wanted to spare Barbara from crying on national television. As for George himself, he kept a special place for Millie in his heart. At the end of 1997, the literacy partners of New York asked him to name his favorite authors. George had an answer instantly. Millie. He wrote the following. Millie, young and fast, lived in the White House. 
She chased squirrels on the White House lawn. She ran like a dart through the lovely woods at Camp David and climbed sure-footedly on the rocks at Maine. She wrote a best-selling book, ably assisted by my wife. This summer, she got cancer and died, and we wept. For Millie had given us great joy and love, and we missed her. George went on to mention Barbara as his other favorite author, but he listed Millie first. Even though she was gone, Millie's influence on the White House wasn't quite done yet. When George W. Bush took office in 2001, Millie's puppy, Spot Fetcher, took the role of first dog. Though she followed in her mother's footsteps, Spot was much more suited to the role. George W. said, Spot understands the decorum of the Oval Office, so she gets to go in. Whatever one thinks of the Bushes, or Millie's early years, the dog's 40 pounds of spots and fluff only did them good. White House social expert Jennifer Pickens noted that Barbara Bush was the first politician to use the pet as a tool to reach out. Sure, Millie didn't write her book, but she lived it, enabled it, inspired it. And hopefully, she's inspired generations to learn to read. Today, children can even buy their own stuffed Millie as a souvenir. Kids and dogs alike can enjoy the 15-acre Millie Bush Park in Houston. But Millie's most notable memorial resides in Washington, D.C. In Barbara's official portrait as First Lady of the United States, Millie sits at her side. Depending on the administration, her image hangs in either the National Gallery or the White House, preserved for all Americans to admire. Not bad for an ugly dog. Thanks for listening to Dog Tales. Every dog has his day, and our day is Mondays. We'll be back then with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Dog Tales and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Dog Tales, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dogtales on Spotify, just open the app and type Dogtales in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for another good story about a good dog. Dog Tales was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Dog Tales was written by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>